Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Cassandra King Conroy, and she's got a new book out entitled Tell Me a Story, My Life with Pat Conroy. Cassandra, welcome back to the journal. Thank you, Walter. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to get into the book and and your life with Pat, but I kind of want to reminisce some back to 2002. Okay. The Sunday Wife had just come out. And uh, the journal was a relatively new show. We've been going for about 18 months then. You were one of the first guests we had on the show. And I found out about you, not via Pat or the fact that you were in South Carolina, but from an Alabama connection, of course. John <laughs> Sledge with the Mobile Register had written a fantastic review of your book. And he and Roy Hoffman both shot me emails and said, you got to have her on your show. She's just down there. On the coast, on Fripp. <laughs> so, yeah, we go way back, uh, both, we, both Alabamians. Both Alabamians. I, I think in discussing not just the Sunday Wife, but particularly the same sweet girls, yes. I can remember, which was about two years later, right? Yes, it was. Okay. Mm-hmm. I knew exactly where you'd sit. <laughs> well, that one's uh, in your old stomping ground. Yeah, and, in your, in, in yeah. Dolphin Island. And I must say, same sweet girls. It get, it tickled me that they appear in this memoir. Oh, yeah. The real same sweet girls. The real same sweet girls. Yes. So I want you to tell me a story, Cassandra, beginning 1995. It was 1995, the first time I met Pat Conroy. And I had uh, admired him as a writer for a long time. I, uh, uh, like <clears throat> a lot of other people that I've heard, say this, read The Waters Wide, and uh, starting out as a a young teacher, that uh, it was so, you know, it's so inspiring because during those times I was teaching, during the very times he was writing about early years of school integration, and I I taught a couple of years in high, seniors in high school. And and where were you doing that? I was was teaching in Shelby County, Alabama. And um, uh, then eventually I would go back and, and get my master's and go and teach uh, college level. So I always <laughs> was teaching the older kids. Uh, I can't see me with kindergartners, but anyway, uh, I taught Composition 101. So I collected a, a lot of passages from from uh, writers to illustrate similes, metaphors, you know, as we were talking about these things in writing. And Pat Conroy just about, you know, topped my list uh, on my handouts for my students. Uh, I'd been an, an admirer, not just the way of the way he, he told a story, which I think he was great at, but also, of course, his beautiful prose. And when I heard he was coming to Birmingham to um, to Southern Voices, a literary conference. I had been invited to to be a speaker that year, and I had a book coming, my first book coming out. Um, but it was a small press, so it wasn't ready on time. As these things happen with small presses. <laughs> and your and your first book was uh, making waves in Zion. It, it was called at the time. It was later uh, purchased by Hyperion in New York and um, re-released as Making Waves. So I I was invited just to attend the reception because this kind of happened at the last minute and, and the, uh, the folks leading the conference knew I was disappointed that my book, you know, I was supposed to be there presenting and my book wasn't available for sale. So I was invited instead to come meet the other writers, one of whom was Pat Conroy, who was getting, they give an award to uh, outstanding contribution to Southern writing every year. And they were a fairly new conference then. They mm-hmm. had given out a couple of awards before then, I believe. I don't think he was, I, mean, I may be wrong about this, he may have been the first one, but anyway. Uh, so I attended the reception and uh, was running late for it because I had another event First thing I did when I got there is said, I want to meet Pat Conroy. I would love to be able to tell my students next time I do my handouts mm-hmm. that I actually had met met this writer. 
And they told you he'd gone. They told me he'd gone. So I was I was disappointed. But at, I was also, because I was running late and hadn't eaten anything, I was starving. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a little bit more interested then. And the first thing I was going to do is grab something to eat and went over to the refreshment table. And I had uh, some friends, writer friends there. I had seen them talking to this man when I when I came in, but like I say, I was trying not to even speak to anybody because I didn't want to get delayed from uh, uh, my imminent starvation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was a big spread. You you made a point about <laughs> high cotton in Birmingham is high cotton in high cotton. I tell you, uh, so yeah, nice fancy spread, and I kind of turned my back to everybody and was. Stuffing my face <laughs> when a friend of friends of mine brought uh, Pat over to meet me. I, of course, I didn't know it was Pat. I just saw that they were bringing this big, rugged, you know, uh, not well dressed guy. I kind of made a point of saying that in in the book because Pat was not known for his fashion sense. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I just figured maybe he was a spouse of, of, of one of the writers, you know, there and had been dragged along unwillingly because he just sat on a plaid shirt and rumpled khakis. So they— Hey, that's almost dressed up for Pat. Uh, that was— well, he thought he was dressed up. <laughs> so they they bring him over, and and since uh, my one of my friends knew I was looking for him, said, "Look, I've found Pat Conroy for you." And I had just stuffed my mouth, so I had to, you know, choke and swallow and gasp and everything else before I could say, "Oh God Almighty." What I meant by that was, oh, my God almighty, you, I had been told you weren't here, you know, like you do, Southern expression, like, oh, my goodness, or whatever. And Pat said, well, not quite, but you're close. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay. So that was that was the first meeting, and how did it progress from there? Well, it was certainly interesting, as all things Conroy <laughs> turned out to be <laughs> as the years went on. But, uh, yeah, I um, I was talking to him about the food there because he said he hadn't eaten either. So we were sharing, you know, standing over the, the refreshment table talking about the food. And my former writing professor— came up and said, oh, I see my, my former student. It must be telling you about her first book coming out. And Pat said, you're a writer? I thought you were the caterer. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was our beginning in that he, he said, uh, asked me about my book. Uh, wanted to talk about it, hear all about it. And that's one reason, Walter, that I knew I had to call this book Tell Me a Story. I never had any hesitation about what the title would be because Pat could draw a story out of anyone. The very first night I met him, he asked me how I came to write this book, the story behind it, where I was from, who I was, all this. I'm pretty reticent about talking about a lot of personal things, he got more, <laughs> you know, got me to tell more than anyone I'd ever met on a first, a right. first meeting. Were you married at the time? I was divorced. It was my divorce was, you know. Okay. That, that, that's the that I was thought because, yes. of course, the Sunday wife, that story plays. In. Yes. All right. Cassandra, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Cassandra King-Conroy about her latest book, Tell Me a Story, My Life with Pat Conroy. So you're here in Birmingham. You have this wonderful meeting with him, and then you're going back to teaching 
in high school and he, he's college. A, I was teaching at Montevallo. At, at Montevallo? Uh-huh. Your alma mater? Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. And he was off on another book tour somewhere. Yes, yeah. Well, it was right before, uh, this was 95, and uh, Beach Music came out that summer. So we went, you know, I never thought about seeing him again. He, I being on any level, I was pleased he offered to give me a blurb for my book and and I we had to exchange addresses uh because he he wanted me to get my publisher to send him send him a book and uh so I had to call my publisher on Monday to say hold the presses because I think uh, you know the book was was supposed to be coming out and and to be able to get to to uh squeeze his blurb in, which of course was very important because he was he was at that pretty much the height of his career uh this was in 92 is when um prince of tides had come out as a movie and uh he was nominated you know was nominated for forgotten how many seven oscars and, and then beach music uh was was long awaited and was finally coming out so he was pretty much at the pinnacle and i was a just starting out, so it was a big deal for me to be able to get an endorsement from such a well-established writer. Email was in its primitive stage, so you were actually writing back and forth. Yes, we we did not have, we didn't even have email. <laughs> I don't think he, neither one. Well, Pat didn't. It would be years before Pat would have would do email. But yeah, yeah, we were. Well, uh, he he would call me. And I found out later, I had no idea, he started calling. He called after he read the book to tell, you know, how much he liked the book. And so I didn't know that Pat loved to talk on the phone. I don't, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But I first met him in 1995. I did not lay eyes on him again until 97, two years later. But we maintained a telephone friendship over the next two years. I, I didn't write him. As a matter of fact, I moved a couple of times during that during that time and didn't think to let him know, even though I, I sent out these cards to other people with my new address on it. That was kind of our relationship. You know, we were just friends, and he just happened to call my old number when my son was there and gave him my new number. <laughs> and... His calls usually came after supper, right? Oh, they were late. Yeah, mm-hmm. they were almost always late at night. And there again, once I got to know Pat and we married and everything, that uh, that's a that was a pattern with him. He would uh, he that was part of almost of his r- relaxation, and that's how he 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 maintained his friendships. And he had friendships all across the spectrum, you know, and a, a lot of writers that he met on the road. He he kept in touch with him um, by frequent calls and um, long chats. Okay, so we're up to ninety seven, and you lay eyes on him again. Where's that? <laughs> well, he called me to tell me he was coming to uh, Birmingham. First, he was speaking in Montgomery at uh, Auburn has a, a branch, Auburn University in Montgomery, and he was giving a, a speech to the student body. Uh, and then he was going to the uh, book festival, the Southern Voices, where he, we had met the first time, because this time his good friend Ann River Siddons was getting the award that Pat had gotten a couple years previously. And um, he wanted to know if I would like to, to go with him to to that event. And I, and I did. I met him. I wasn't even sure if he would remember me. I met him in the lobby over in Birmingham and went with him to the dinner. And the story from there? <laughs> well, the story from there is, uh, oh, Pat, goodness, this is so funny. Uh, Walter, he he would tell me later that he was he was shy about asking women out, and he wasn't good good at it, and he wasn't. Because I had no idea that he was asking me out. He he wanted. He said he wanted to come visit me. By that time, I was teaching at Gadsden State Community College, 
So I had moved across state, but it's over in um, East Alabama. So I was only then about a couple hours at best from Atlanta. And he said he was going to be in Atlanta, and he would like to come visit me because he wanted to go to Piedmont to see his mother's hometown, where his mother was born. When she was a baby, I understand, they moved to Rome, Georgia. So she often said Rome, Georgia was her was her hometown, but she was actually born in Piedmont, Alabama, still had a lot of relatives there. And he said he had always wanted to see it, and I live very near there. Well, I find out later that was all malarkey. That was just Irish blarney because he had been several times before. But he wanted me to think, uh, instead of that he was pursuing me, that he was coming to see Piedmont. <laughs> <laughs> so you you have that visit and yes, uh, well we we met up in Atlanta because he he wanted to come see me and I said I won't be here. I have to speak at a, an event in Savannah, and he said, well ordinarily he would be close to Savannah, but he. Um, he would be in Atlanta, and then he said, well, wait a minute, won't you be coming through Atlanta on your way to Savannah? And I said, yes. And he said, well, why don't we meet for dinner? And that was our first, quote, actual date. But but it was still very casual. I mean, there was nothing—it was very platonic, nothing romantic about it. But then when he did the following weekend come, uh, because he was so, you know, wanting to see his— <laughs> mother's whole hometown. <laughs> he came over for, uh, for a visit to Gadsden, and, and so we actually, I guess that's when our courtship really began. He told me he was tired of being my friend. <laughs> and how long did your courtship go? Um, okay, so this was, this was 97, the very beginning of 97, the uh, February is, is when they have that Southern Voices. So we, you know, started seeing each other until I came to Fripp the end of the summer of 97. And Pat said he, he was not going to be able to continue driving over to Gadsden every, every other weekend or as often as he was coming to see me, his father was ill. His father was going to be moving to Buford so that Pat and his sister Kathy could help take care of him. And that we were just going to have a lot of complications once my classes started back. So I would just have to to marry him and, and move to Fripp Island. And I said, but I don't want to get married again. And he said, well, I don't want to either, but <laughs> I don't want to drive over to see you all the time either. <laughs> so anyway, I, I did end up um, giving in. I, I didn't the first semester. I I went back to teaching instead to Gadsden, and we were just like lovesick teenagers, Walter. We, we kept, you know— writing and calling each other and so forth, or he called me. Women of my generation didn't call me. And uh, <laughs> and so I I did hand in my resignation, and I moved, moved to Fripp over the Christmas holidays after the semester was okay. over. So now you know you're going to get married, and there's a wonderful passage in your book <laughs> about selecting wedding rings. Yes. Would you like to read that for, okay. our, for our listeners? I like this uh, incident, Walter, because it does, to me, it just tells you so much about Pat and, you know, what his—he he was a mess, I tell you that. He was quite a character himself. He wrote about a lot of colorful characters, and, and he was one as, as much as anyone else. Our marriage had come about as inexplicably as everything else in our relationship did. Sometime earlier that spring, we'd driven to Atlanta for Pat to give a speech. 
Instead of bypassing the downtown area, as we always did when we drove through Augusta, Pat drove downtown and parked the car without a single word to me. I looked at him puzzled and eyed the neighborhood. Was there a coffee house I'd missed? Had Pat decided we needed an early lunch? I've always wanted to look in this store, Pat said after he opened the car door for me. Even more puzzled, I followed him into a jewelry store called the Raven's Hoard. Like most men I know, Pat detested shopping. It was hard to believe that he had always wanted to look into any place except a bookstore where he could spend hours. What he told the clerk at the counter left me speechless. Hello, sir, Pat said in greeting. We're looking for a couple of wedding rings. What have you got in stock? A couple of wedding rings? Oh, really? Then pray tell, when was the wedding? My invitation must have been lost in the mail. That Christmas when Pat asked me what kind of engagement ring I wanted, I told him I didn't want one. As we stood at the jewelry counter, I poked Pat with my elbow, hard, but he ignored me as the clerk pulled out a black velvet tray. And in the midst of all those ordinary rings were two gold bands, one large and the other small, with exquisite engraving that appeared to be Celtic. Let's see those, Pat told the guy. Even to this day, I don't know if the whole thing was Pat's version of the ring hidden in the chocolate mousse trick or not, but both rings fit us perfectly. We'll take them, Pat said without even glancing my way which was just as well since I was so astonished that my mouth hung open like a fool. Had he arranged it previously, or was it sheer coincidence? I'll never know. Pat would only smile mysteriously whenever I asked, but he never told me the truth. More surprises were to come. As we drove off with the two ring boxes in my lap, I dared to ask him, Ah, Pat, is there something you want to tell me? When he glanced my way, his bright Irish eyes twinkled. Nothing I can think of. Why? I motioned toward the boxes. Oh, no reason. Just sort of wondering what I'm supposed to do with these. Well, the smaller ring I put on your finger and the bigger one you put on mine. You know, with this ring, I thee wed and all that stuff. Oh, and uh, when might this take place? Best I remember we haven't set a date. The seriousness of his dad's illness had made wedding plans seem frivolous, and we'd agreed to wait for happier times before planning anything definite. Pat shrugged. Well, I called Alex Judge Sanders yesterday to see when he could marry us. I'll let you know when he calls me back. Yeah, might be a good idea if you did. And how long after that did you... Get married. It was after his father died. His father died the 1st of, of May, and it was sort of the same thing, Walter. Uh, his father, I think, died the first weekend in May, and we we were married the last weekend in May, He and Pat came in um, a couple of weeks, you know, after the funeral, about a week before we would get married, and he said, Alex said he could marry us next Sunday afternoon, <laughs> so I said, Okay. <laughs> Well, you, at one place you talk about we ran away to get married. So we ran away. We did. <laughs> all right. Now, you both have children. You're going to have a huge family. How does all that work out? Well, it was interesting. We called ourselves the Brady Bunch on steroids because I raised three boys. Pat had four daughters. So we really were the Brady Bunch, you know. <laughs> um, but we... Uh, his his youngest daughter was still in was still in uh, well he, she was yeah just starting college when when we married and my my youngest son was was in college so we didn't have any kids at home mm-hmm. we had grandchildren we both had grandchildren at that time yeah I had more than Pat but we had grandchildren and, and you also had the uh, Conroy siblings. And we had the siblings and my sib, you know, I had two sisters at that time. And so we were a big family and we were a close-knit family. But both of us, our families got together. Often my father was still living then. 
fact, he actually came to visit us one time so he could try fishing. He loved fishing more than anything. And he wanted to fish in, in the lagoon behind our house. Otherwise, he never went. He never visited any of us. Okay. <laughs> and the date is I mean, when you got married. Oh, we got married in May of 1998. Okay. So you were married almost 20 years. Yeah. It was, you know, 18 years, is, is, but we were together 19. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And you're both continuing your careers. Yes. You all were at Litchfield and you were both writing. I, I just remember Pat said, well, she goes off there and write, and I'll go off here and write, and we don't bother each other. Yeah, uh, it was, you know, a lot of people have said, what was it like for two writers to be uh, in, in the same house, living together, working together? Uh, and when The Sunday Wife came, came out, my losing season came out about the same time. So we were on book tour. Mine was slightly ahead of his. I think I came out early fall and he came out later that fall, you know, something like that. So we were literally ships passing in the night on, on book tour. But when we were at home or went off to, you know, like we were at Litchfield Beach, as you mentioned, or Highlands, or even when we would go to Maine sometimes in the summer, we always selected the rooms that we were going to get away from each other to do our, our writing and, and our, our house. My my writing room was upstairs, and his was all the way at the other end of the house. So in a lot of ways, without, except without having to get in our car and drive somewhere, we were like, you know, other couples who went off to their office, you know, to, to work and didn't see each other again until dinner. Pat never stopped writing, obviously, but this is also a very prolific period for you. I mean— uh, the Sunday Wife comes out, and then then you've got the same Sweet Girls. Uh, a little bit later, you've got Moonrise. So, you're continuing to write at the same time, living with this uh, legend. Yeah. And he was. Let's let's just get it. Let's let's get that absolutely. Well, and also Pat was pretty high maintenance. He was. I I, I write a, a, about this, and if pe- anyone who who knew Pat knows knows this, I wasn't revealing that he's. The absolutely most absent-minded uh, person. He, he was. He was an artistic spirit in a lot of ways. That the ever, you know, just the everyday details of life. He 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 couldn't. He never got them. He would start out somewhere. He maybe was having to go to to speak somewhere, and I would say, Pat come back, you've got your shirt on inside out, you know, and things like that. He just didn't, you know, he, he was, he needed a keeper, let me put it that way. <laughs> and uh, so, so he was, yeah, that, that I, I think it, that I wrote as, as much as I did and, and kept Pat, you know, during this period of time is, is, Pretty remarkable because he was a full-time job in himself. (laughs) (laughs) This was part of his hedonistic phase as well. Hedonistic in terms of food, drink. Oh, yes, yes. Well, Pat had a lot of self-destructive habits. He did not take care of himself. He had a lot of health issues. Um, You know, I mean, you could look at him, tell he was certainly overweight. He drank too much. Uh, And I knew if I wrote a a memoir about our our life together, I'd have to deal with a a lot of those things that, that really worried me. And uh, everybody who knew Pat knew that maybe the general public didn't. But I mean, those of us who interacted with him, I mean, that was just part of his persona. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, mean, he was a fabulous cook. You know, yes. But but the way he cooked was not healthy. You know, he believed that there was no such thing as as too much butter, too much cream, too much uh, rare meat. You know, this sort of he just uh, I like to say he was he was larger than life in everything he did. He cooked that way. You know, he was an exuberant personality. He was an exuberant cook. Uh, but but he didn't, you know, he he didn't take care of himself. Now, uh, saying that, having said that, Walter, he, he would get on different kicks. He would get us, he would have a scare or he would, uh, he was also, he was diabetic. And uh, the 
the uh, doctors would would put the fear of God in him, so he he would get get on this kick, and he would he would absolutely he would stop drinking, he would start eating healthy, he would exercise, and you know he would feel better than ever and look better than ever. But then uh, maybe he would go back on the road again with a book tour, and and those those are. It's almost impossible to stay healthy on a book tour. I don't know how anyone does it. Uh, there's always a reception. There's always... Oh, of course, yeah. Then you get all these baskets in your room, and you get some of your readers and fans are going to bring you, you know, a, a thing of brownies or to have in your room and, and this sort of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's not not a good way to to enforce a healthy lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> so then he comes back home, and you're... You're wanting to to feed him rabbit food, <laughs> right? And he did not like that. He resisted. Uh, he resisted a lot. One of the things that that Pat and I shared, and this was a you were you were there, is we both began to lose our hearing at about the same time. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so, his brother Tim had arranged for us to do a program for the autistic yes. children in South mm-hmm. Carolina, and Pat had said earlier. You know, Walter, I can't hear a darn thing on this stage. You're going to have to do something. So we worked out a plan. I did a script, but I had big numbers. And I would I would ask the question, which he didn't hear, but he would look at my finger and see which one. I, and he or number two, he'll answer, he answered the, <laughs> yeah. the, the question yeah. because we were in that big auditorium at the State Museum and neither one of us could. <laughs> well, it was it was a pro. It, it, you know, it really was a problem for him. A lot of times when I would was with him, we would be, you know, if we were at a dinner or something where he was the guest of honor, and somebody had asked him something, he wouldn't hear them. I would have to either poke him or you know get right in his face to make sure, because otherwise he seemed like the rudest person in the world. Well, yeah. You know, even with modern hearing aids, you have a soft voice, and if we're in a big crowd. I'm going to lean into you, mm-hmm. uh, and if people don't know me, I'm going to tell them, I'm not getting fresh. <laughs> I just want to hear what can, you're saying. I just can't hear you. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh. Now, he had a pet name for you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this is so funny. Well, let's talk oh. about how that came up. Uh, well, I think maybe I've I've sort of had to come out of my shell more more now, but I've always been a fairly shy person certainly reticent. I don't, I really don't like talking about a lot of personal things. I was raised that way. My mother, you know, we did not talk. That was, that wasn't done. And so Pat just couldn't believe that things that he would find out about me that I hadn't told him. And he would, he would say, well, you never tell me anything. And so he finally decided that, that the best nickname for me was Helen Keller because he said not only was were we both Alabamians, but I saw nothing, heard nothing, said nothing. And, of course, that was his usual blarney because Helen Keller was very vocal in, in her own way. But, uh, but he met that, you know, tongue-in-cheek, but still that I was reticent, a reticent-type person. Everybody in my family and my friends loved it because they would they would do the same thing. They would say, oh, I didn't know you were coming. If I'd known you were coming to speak, say, in Atlanta, I would have, but you didn't tell me. You know, so I was always hearing, oh, you got an award for such and such, but you didn't tell me, or, things like this. And so they would, you know. It also right. people would call me Helen Keller too. <laughs> I, so we're really you're, you're a close circle of friends, the same sweet girls, the young women you were with at Montevallo. Yes, they understood you, right? Yes, yes, of course. They'd known me so long, and, and and of course that generation of young women really didn't toot their own horns. Or no, you know, you didn't toot your own horn, and you you certainly didn't air your dirty linen, or, or and and then here was Pat, the absolute opposite. 
you know, that he told everything. He had written these tell-all books for his family and all. And I always thought, gosh, that was something I could never do. <laughs> well, as you know, as we know from the conversation uh, that we had here on the journal with all the siblings when the great Santini came out, I mean, he really told all, and that's. That was a, that actually was a cathartic experience for all those siblings. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And, and you know, Walter, a lot of people, I think, uh, I, I usually, when I'm talking about Pat in, in any kind of, um, you know, context uh, of, of giving a, a reading or, or talk or whatever, I, I remind people that, that Pat was, he was uh, a forerunner to a lot of these tell-all memoirs. And, and Great Santini was not a memoir. It was, but it, he made it really obvious who it was. The Great Santini was his father's nickname in the Marine Corps. So, you know, that was, that was pretty obvious. But uh, he, he did this before people were, were talking about domestic violence. You know, that was, that was coming. It was certainly coming, but he was a forerunner. Yeah, and that tell-all, as you said, that's that's not in your DNA. No. Cassandra, we need to pause for a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Cassandra King Conroy about her latest book, Tell Me a Story, My Life with Pat Conroy. So you're, you're married in, in 1998. You're both continuing to be prolific writers. Pat, Several years before he died, and we're talking about maybe 2012, 13, he decides he really is going to eat well and exercise. Yes, he, he did. He was the healthiest before he, uh, a few years before he died, on up until, you know, of course, his diagnosis and so forth, that he had ever been. He, he was working with a personal trainer, which he had tried various, you know, forms of exercise and going to gyms and stuff like this for each time he would get on one of these these health kicks uh, but this is what he needed to do all along your physician there in, in Buford had a great deal to do with that right dr. Lafitte yes, yes. And, and some of some of the listeners may may know the Lafitte's because his father was a beloved physician and and uh, dr. Lafitte uh, uh, was he he was one of the few doctors that I saw with with Pat when I uh, Pat never wanted me, of course, like I think most men, you know, didn't want me to go to the doctor with him because he knew what they were going to say, and he didn't want me hearing it and saying, "Okay, you got to start eating healthy." Now. <laughs> but I would just go anyway when I could pull it off, and he would go in and Walter, you know, Pat, he would snow the doctor. And we get back to tell me a story. He would have them eating out of his hand. Uh, we went to a heart doctor. It's this lovely young woman. And he found out all about her, why she went to medical school, why she got interested in cardiology and all that. She forgot She forgot to give him a, an EKG. <laughs> I'm serious. So these things happened all the time. Lucius Lafitte was not having that from, <laughs> from well, he, Pat. He, he, he comes. He comes from a long family of storytellers. I can just. Uh, I can yeah. just. Yes. I can just tell you that. Well, uh, he he wouldn't he wouldn't put up with Pat's uh, okay. uh, blarney, and and he 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 really helped to get him on the straight and narrow. Okay, and Pat's okay with that. He's. He really is get he is with the he program. had had a, a pretty serious health scare after that, I think he realized that he really did have to um to get serious about his health. He was you know then in his mid sixties, mm -hmm. and as I think we all began to to look at our mortality and and so forth so he he started listening to dr you know really paying attention and, and working with a personal trainer. He stopped drinking altogether. He actually never protested my healthy cooking, you know, <laughs> then. And he, he lost so much weight. He looked, everybody that was seeing was like, Pat, you look fantastic. Then we're coming up to his 70th birthday, which was a huge celebration there in Beaufort. 
It, it was. This was something he had been having a good time helping discover some new writers. He got uh, involved with Jonathan Halp at the uh, University of South Carolina Press with a new imprint of fiction called Story River. And he and Jonathan, Pat was helping to select and edit these uh, new works of fiction by uh, up-and-coming Southern writers. And he was he was enjoying that so much. But Jonathan Hamp got this idea with Pat's 70th birthday should be a big celebration in Buford, almost like a book festival in itself. And and he brought back a lot of the, a lot of the folks who had been in Pat's movies, and his Nan Talese, his editor and publisher, were there, and it was a great weekend. Yep, an, an incredible weekend, uh, and a high point. But then he was tired, and y'all went to the mountains. Yeah, he so that had he had to have not been feeling well then, but. But I didn't know it. He was eventually, uh, of course, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. It, it will often early symptoms are back pain. And he had had back surgery year before. He had always had uh, uh, problems with his back and had back pain. So that was not an alarm bell. But that, what, that was really beginning to be a problem with him. And he was increasingly tired all the time. Very exhausted. But there again, we would think, you know, of course you're exhausted. You've just had this big festival. And at that time, he was also helping to promote these Story River authors that he had he had uh, championed. And he was going around doing events and signings with, with them. I mean, he drove from the mountains of North Carolina to Pensacola. Yes. Ten hours. Yes. By himself. And he regretted it. That was probably the beginning of when he began to see that, that he wasn't doing well. So he's also losing weight. Yes. But he was trying to lose weight. Well, of course, rapid weight loss is a sign of, of serious, you know, illness. But it, we didn't see that coming because, you know, that was part of his health regime. So about Christmas time, he really began, and you really begin to see, or he feels himself that something's really wrong. Some, something seemed really wrong at Christmas, but even then I wasn't thinking seriously wrong. I know that I was in denial. I had... I had lost my sister, to, my youngest sister, to cancer three years previously. Um, she also had rapid um, weight loss and the fatigue and the sick, just the sickness and you know nausea and this sort of stuff that Pat was experiencing. So I, I had, I should have known. I felt like I should have, I should have known something serious was going on with him, but but I didn't. The denial is understandable. Yes. Yeah, uh, I think we all do it. Um, so, but early in the new year, he goes to see Dr. Lafitte and... Well, he gets very, he gets very sick. Okay. Uh, uh, can't keep anything down. And the back pain is increasing. And uh, when, when he went to Dr. Lafitte and they were talking about pancreatitis, which in itself is a serious you know, disease, he sent him then to a, a, a gastro guy that Pat had been, been to before. He goes to see the gastroenterologist, and then he goes to the emergency room, and, and then the decision was made he needed to go to Well, he, he, by that time, they had done the, they saw a mass on, on, in the area of the pancreas, and poor Pat said, well, what's a pancreas? You know, he, he wasn't into all the, you know, he'd never been that interested in all these health, health things and so forth. So Pat's youngest daughter, Susanna, worked at Emory and knew some of the doctors there. So she talked with one of the top cancer specialists because they were pretty sure by then that's what it was. When you say you see a mass, you know, I think that's what most people think. It, it had not been confirmed, but that's certainly what they were thinking, and arranged for him to to be seen at Emory in Atlanta. And um, 
but he had to be taken by ambulance to get to get there. A snowstorm came that day. <laughs> In a snowstorm with two actually new Bufortonians, they were not familiar with the area and didn't know anything about Atlanta in the snowstorm, and Pat from the back of the ambulance directs them to the hospital. They had to go the back back roads because, of, as we all know, the South closes down when we get a few snowflakes, and they had closed down even some of the interstates and so forth in Atlanta. But Pat Emory is the area uh, is in the area where he had had lived previously, so he was able to direct them from his from his stretcher to take some back roads and get to the hospital. Okay. And things really go down from there. It's and very rapid. Uh, that's the end of January, and. Uh, it was very rapid. Well, if, it, if it's not too upsetting, the last couple of days, including the last night where this mysterious nurse appears. That's, that's, that's a story, Walter, that I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, it's, there, there are all sorts of deathbed stories. I know I have one with my grandmother. I've heard other people have shared with, you know, shared with me. I've heard all, all sorts of these. But the the last night, the night before Pat, Pat died, uh, we were uh, up and down, of course, all night. He was in hospice just like for three days only when he was brought home. So uh, the, the night before, a night nurse came, and she was a very spiritual person. We had not had a night nurse before. Tim Conroy and my son Jason had been the ones getting up through the night seeing about uh, Pat. He, he had to have medication had to have every, every two hours. Yes, or so. every two hours and so forth. And um, uh, so this was it was taking its toll, and I had had said something about we need to start getting a night nurse. I didn't do anything about it, but I mean, if you want to look at it less mystically, someone must have heard and sent this nurse. But she sang hymns. She came into the sick room to and would sing these hymns, and I was sleeping in, in the sick room with him, and I would doze on and off during these times through the night. And the next morning, Tim and Jason and Pat's daughters and some of the others who were who were there during these last hours asked me uh, where I got the nurse. And I said, you know, I, I don't know. I guess hospice center. I, I have no idea. And they said she sang hymns to us, and she told us that before he died, a, a bridge would appear, and and I said, "Oh, come on, you know that kind of thing." Uh, y'all are y'all are worn out. You're just exhausted, and you know this is a figment of your imagination. No, you know, no, no. I swear, this woman was not. She she appeared out of nowhere at night. She was gone when everybody woke up the the next morning. So a lot of family members still believe she was an angel. That's what Tim said. Yes. Brother Tim. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that she brought so much comfort to them. And I would later ask hospice, where did you get the night nurse? And it was, what night nurse? You know, no one knew. To this day, we don't know where the night nurse came from, but... Pat died shortly after sunset, and we had the most unusual sunset I've ever seen in that the sun appeared to be forming a bridge. (laughs) The rays of the sun came down over the creek and appeared to be forming this bridge, and all of us just couldn't, you know... We we were staring at it in disbelief, and he he died a few minutes later. I'd like to read that paragraph. Okay, thank you. Early that evening, Pat left this world for the next, taking his last breath right after the darkness fell. He would have appreciated the metaphor. The sunset that day had been a benediction, more spectacular than ever. 
and a strange thing happened before the sun, in a blaze of fiery pink, sank into the gently flowing creek. For a brief moment of gold, the sun appeared through an opening in a cloud. Then a beam of light began to form a bridge directly over the creek, one that led up to our dock. Those of us in the sick room froze in place and watched in awestruck silence. I've never seen anything quite like it before or since. It's not unusual for a bright ribbon of gold to shimmer on the water during a sunset, but I've never seen one come directly down from the clouds like that. Finally, Tim spoke. Holy Mother of God, it's turning into a bridge. Are you kidding me? He turned to stare at me wide-eyed. I knew what we were thinking the same thing. We might never know who sent Sarah. That was the yes. night nurse. Yes. But she had brought us an indelible message of truth. Yes. Uh, I think Pat could not have written a better way for him to leave this world, it looking was, out at his, so at his low country marsh. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right, Cassandra, Alfred's giving me the, the wind-up sign. Have you got any last words for our listener before we sign off today? Walter, I, it was very difficult for me to write this book, but it was. I also felt like it was important because Pat had so many wonderful fans, readers who adored him, and I wanted I wanted people to know the man that that I knew. The, the wonderful, generous, big-hearted person that was, a, a, he was, yes, he was a fabulous, amazing writer, but he was an amazing person as well. Well, Cassandra King Conroy, thank you so much for being with us once again on The Journey. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I did, even though at moments it was poignant, even sad, as Cassandra King Conroy and I discussed Pat Conroy, her late husband, a living legend, a South Carolina figure who will always be one of the state's literary icons, but also a part of its history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.